Hello folks, how are you doing? This episode is a history of the World Cup. So it's probably just for the football fans out there. But hopefully those of you who aren't into football can enjoy it too. You'll see that it's a, it's a very long episode. I didn't expect it to be this long. But I hope you enjoy it. It covers all the World Cups that we've had since 1930, focusing on the key events with a few dodgy jokes along the way. You can read 99% of the transcript on the page for this episode. Almost all of it is transcribed. That's it. I hope you enjoy it. Here's the jingle. You're listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk. Hello, welcome to the podcast. How are you doing today? You doing all right? I hope so. Now, you've probably noticed that the World Cup is starting on the 14th of June. I've received a few requests to talk about it. So here we go. Now, I'd like to do a few episodes about the World Cup over the next few weeks, if I can, because I'm sure that many of you around the world will be watching the games and getting into it. On the other hand, I'm sure that some of you couldn't give a monkeys about football. If you, by the way, if you can't give a monkeys about something, it means that you don't care about it. Okay, you couldn't give a toss. You couldn't give a monkeys. You couldn't care less. Maybe. Well, I hope that you listen anyway, and that you don't just throw your phone into a lake in disgust, or indeed into any body of water in in disgust. Like, ah, oh, football. I'm disgusted. Just. Don't do that. Don't throw your phone anywhere. Just listen to the episode. You might actually enjoy it because football isn't just about kicking a ball around. Okay, it's also about other things like scandals, corruption, and geopolitical manoeuvring. And of course, the people of the world coming together over a shared love of goals. The World Cup is the most prestigious association football tournament in the world, as well as being the most widely viewed and followed sporting event in the world, exceeding even the Olympic Games. The cumulative audience of all matches, for example, at the 2006 FIFA World Cup, was estimated to be 26.29 billion. That's total audience of all the matches in just one World Cup. 26.29 billion, with an estimated 715.1 million people watching the final match. And that's a ninth of the entire population of the planet watched the World Cup final, they estimate, in 2006. We have had so far 20 World Cups in 16 countries, and that doesn't include this year's tournament, which is the 21st World Cup so far, and is, of course, taking place in Russia. So we've had 2,309 goals so far in uh, World Cups in history. Um, In terms of teams, the teams with the most victories so far... Uh, Brazil are still in number one position there with five World Cup wins. Then Italy in fourth position with four World Cup wins. And Germany as well. So it's joint. uh, We have Germany and Italy in joint fourth place. Uh, Both of those countries having won four World Cups in total. uh, In then fourth place, we have Uruguay, who um, have won the World Cup twice. Uh, But that was quite a long time ago, 1930 and 1950. So it seems we've kind of like a lot of places, a lot of people in a lot of countries will have kind of forgotten about Uruguay, but there they are in fourth position. 
Um, actually, joint fourth position uh, with Uruguay is Argentina. Um, and uh, they've won it twice. Then we've got uh, three teams uh, who've won it uh, once. We have England, of course, in 1966, and France, of course, in 1998, and Spain, of course, in 2010. In terms of uh, what else? What else? What else? What else? What else? Well, there's lot. There are lots of other statistics and things. I've kind of collected a few stats together and added some links and things onto uh, the page for this episode on the website. Also, you'll see a lot of what I'm saying, a lot of my history of the World Cup, which I'm going to be uh, giving to you in this episode. A lot of it, a lot of it, almost all of it is written down. And so you can follow along with me uh, while I'm reading this to you. So it'll be like, I mean, that's good. It's, it's going to be like an audio book or whatever just just think of it think of something that's good that's got a script and that's this basically so i'm saying it's got a trait a transcript which is good so if you want you can follow along while you're listening uh you can check out words and all that stuff all the benefits of having a transcript um yes that's what you've got here so this year as i said um 2018 it's being hosted in russia it all kicks off on the 14th of june Uh, But what is the story so far? Let's go back in time in this episode, all the way back to 1930, when the first World Cup ever happened. And then we'll go through each competition one by one and talk about some of the highlights. So this is my history of the World Cup. And I'm going to attempt to deal with the main points, like, for example, who won and where the competition took place. But I'm also hoping to cover some of the more interesting events and little stories that have uh, unfolded uh, during the World Cup over the years. Interesting events, scandals, shocks, surprises, and also my own personal memories of the World Cup as well, of different World Cup tournaments that I've uh, seen um, in the past. So then, let's begin at the beginning. That would be uh, a logical thing to do. And we'll start with the first World Cup, which took place in 1930, and it was hosted by Uruguay. The first goal in World Cup history was scored by Lucien Laurent of France. And four days later, the first World Cup hat-trick was achieved by Bert Paternode of the USA in the Americans' 3-0 win against Paraguay. Yeah, that's right. The United States of America got the first World Cup hat-trick in 1930 and beat Paraguay 3-0, which does, just doesn't seem right somehow, does it? the united states taking part in the original world cup tournament they don't play football do they i mean they play their own version of football like american football where they throw the ball and you know they don't really use their feet that very much and the ball doesn't really look like a ball in fact really instead of calling it football they should call it hand egg that would make more sense but no the americans have been uh, involved in the world cup from the very beginning Yes, I know that. I know, I know they don't even call it football, they call it soccer or soccer. Uh, but there you go, they, they, they've been involved from the very beginning. Now, anyway, in the final of the 1930 World Cup, Uruguay defeated Argentina 4 2 in front of a crowd of 93,000 people in Montevideo and became the first nation to win a World Cup. Well done, Uruguay. Well done. Congratulations. Now, the 1934 World Cup was hosted by Italy. And this is where some of the drama kicks in here. There's a lot of drama over the years. So the the 1934 World Cup hosted in Italy. Uruguay, the title holders from 1930 
boycotted the 1934 World Cup. If you boycott something, it means you don't use it. You don't go like if you boycott a place, it means you don't go there. If you boycott a product, for example, it means you don't use it. In this case, they Uruguay boycotted the 1934 World Cup. They refused to take part because they were upset that so many European teams hadn't attended their original World Cup in 1930. Now, obviously, I've got no idea what I'm talking about, really, but that does sound a bit like a teenager's temper tantrum. Like, oh, no one came to my party, so I'm not going to go to your party. I mean, I bet they had a good reason for it and stuff like that. But anyway, it was boycotted, because that's the kind of stuff that used to go down in the early days of the World Cup, countries boycotting each other's tournaments and things. Italy won the tournament, beating Czechoslovakia uh, to become the first European team to win the tournament. Well done, Italy. The 1938 World Cup competition was also held in Europe, much to the consternation of many South Americans, with Uruguay and Argentina both boycotting the, uh, the 38 World Cup. The temper tantrums continued, apparently. But to be fair, it was probably a huge pain in the neck for South American teams to travel to Europe. And I bet that FIFA was already maybe following the smell of cash. Where's the money at? Maybe that's a bit cynical of me. But anyway, France hosted in 1938. But for the first time, the hosts didn't win the competition as Italy retained their title, beating Hungary in the final by four goals to two. Up until about 1950, the World Cup was beset by political disagreements, boycotts and, of course, World War II, which kind of got in the way of of everything, didn't it? World War II, in a way, was a bit like the World Cup, but sort of a World Cup of blowing each other up and dying. So not as good as the normal World Cup at all, not even a little bit as good. World War II had many downsides, of course, not least of which was the fact that uh, the 1942 and 1946 World Cup football tournaments were cancelled. Thanks a lot, Hitler. Uh, Everyone was too busy trying to shoot each other, let alone shoot a ball into a goal with their foot. It wasn't until later that the World Cup managed to unite the world as it's known for doing today. Uh, competition resumed uh, with the 1950 World Cup in Brazil, which was the first to include British participants in the form of England. So this is the first competition that the English team in 1950 took part in. Tally-ho, chaps. It's us. It's the bloody English. Pip-pip and all that. We only invented the game of football and introduced it to the world to teach old Johnny Foreigner a thing or two about British stiff-upper-lip discipline. Sorry we're late, by the way, everyone. Uh, We just had a spot of bother over there on the continent with a rather naughty chap called Hitler. Silly sod, thought he could take over the world. (laughs) Anyway, looks like the rest of you have finally learnt how to play football by the proper rules. Right, lads, time to show planet Earth a thing or two about kicking an inflated pig's bladder around a grass rectangle. Watch out, world, here we come. Better fill that World Cup full of afternoon tea, what? (laughs) Uh, So that was the English uh, entering uh, the, the competition. High hopes for the English team entering their first World Cup. As, as always, there are always high hopes for the English. And what happened? Did they beat everyone in a gentlemanly way while bringing values of fair play and democracy wherever they went? No, no, they didn't. No, the, the English failed to make the final group round in a campaign that included a 1-0 loss to the United States. Oh, how humiliating. 
and kind of symbolic as well. Oh, jolly good America. Right, yes, of course, let the Yanks have a crack at the old world domination, so to speak. <laughs> yes, just hand over the reins there to old Dwight Eisenhower and his boys. Jolly good. Yep, carry on, carry on. Yes, what, British Empire? What? No, no, we're just clearing a few things up here. Nothing to see. Yes, carry on. Uh, Eastern European countries like Hungary, the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia. And yes, uh, this Wikipedia article that I've adapted here does consider the Soviet Union to be an Eastern European country. Yeah. And by the way, a lot of this stuff that I'm saying here, I kind of adapted from uh, a Wikipedia page about the history of the World Cup. I've taken that as a basis and then I've kind of added lots of my own stuff on the top. So this whole thing is like a mix between Wikipedia and and me. Okay? Right. So uh, Eastern European countries, which apparently includes the Soviet Union, uh, they didn't enter. Um, title holder Italy did take part, despite the Superga air disaster of 1949, in which the entire Gran Torino team, many of who were national team players, were killed. Um, Uruguay were surprise victors over hosts Brazil in a match which would later be known as Maracanazo, which I'm sure I've pronounced wrong. Um, so Uruguay became champions for the second time. It was another good result for Uruguay. Well done. Um, well, well done, Uruguay. 1930-1950. If you keep up this level of form, you might be uh, in with a chance this year. Now, uh, it must have been a nasty shock for Brazil, of course, as they were the hosts. And the stadium must have been filled with Brazilian supporters. Apparently, when the match ended, people said the stadium was filled with disturbing and traumatic absolute silence. Except for the, for the euphoria and celebration of the Uruguayan players and their delegation. Apparently, the defeat still haunts Brazil to this day. The term Phantom of 50 was later used to refer to the fear that Brazilians and the Brazilian national football team feel of the Uruguay national football team due to this loss. So it's like Brazil are kind of like got this weird supernatural fear of Uruguay. They call it the Phantom of, of 1950. Each time Brazil and Uruguay play at the Maracanã Stadium, the theme resurfaces. Ooh, they're like haunted by the, the, the loss. I don't know if they still are. Brazilian people, you can confirm or deny uh, any of this. In fact, anyone listening to this, right? Any of you out there listening to this, even people who aren't listening to this, um, if you feel like I've missed something or I've got something wrong, please let me know in the comments section. Uh, You can add your corrections. Or maybe if there are things that I've missed, like some interesting or funny moments that I've missed, you can add them in the comments section. Any corrections that you feel need to be made, add them in the comments section. Okay, that would be good. Um, India were supposed to play in the 1950 World Cup, but apparently they had to withdraw because they weren't allowed to play barefoot. They had no boots and actually expected to play with completely bare feet, which presumably was how they used to play in India uh, back then. The 1954 World Cup held in Switzerland was the first to be televised. The Soviet Union didn't participate because of their dismal performance at the 1952 Summer Olympics. Now, I'm not really sure why this meant that they couldn't take part in the World Cup. Why does performing badly in the Olympics mean that you can't 
take part in the World Cup. Maybe they were just embarrassed. Or maybe they just briefly forgot how to run or something. Like the 50s was just a bad time for running uh, in the Soviet Union. Just, they were too busy dealing with everything else at the time. And so, sorry, no, we, we, we don't have enough, uh, I don't know what, we don't have enough money to run around. Um, so everyone's just walking and that's fine. Okay, so carry on, everyone else. We'll, we'll be back. But um, no running or kicking for us for a while. Okay, just not until we sort out everything else that's going on here. Okay, Scotland in 1954 made their first appearance in the tournament but they were unable to register a win going out after the group stage setting a precedent for the rest of their international career which is generally marked by nothing in particular except for a great goal admittedly by Archie Gemmell um, in the 70s but other than that Scotland's international career has unfortunately unfortunately been quite crap which is probably England's fault somehow. I'm not sure how, but it's probably our fault. Uh, West Germany were the tournament winners, defeating Olympic champions Hungary 3-2 in the final, coming back from being 2-0 down. The, mir- the, the, the match is known as the Miracle of Bern in Germany, although Bern is actually in Switzerland. Does that make sense? It's, it's known as the Miracle of Bern in Germany, although Bern is in Switzerland. But you know what I mean. It's just, I mean, in Germany, they call it the miracle of Bern. Okay, fine. Uh, Brazil made up for their crushing defeat in 1950 and won the 1958 World Cup, which was held in Sweden, and they became the first team to win a World Cup outside their home continent. Congratulations, Brazil. Well done. Only three teams have done this to date. Brazil in 1958... 1970, 1994, and 2002, and Argentina in 1986, and Spain in 2010. So it seems that teams uh, do well in their own continents, and probably even better when it's at home. The Soviet Union participated this time, most likely due to their win at the Melbourne Olympics in 1956. Again, there we go. The Soviets were were very, very uh, influenced by the Olympics. Do well in the Olympics, then... Proceed with confidence into the World Cup. Don't do well in the Olympics. Nah, just keep a low profile. But apparently they did well in 1956 in the Olympics, and so they were uh, involved in 1958's World Cup. I don't know if it was part of the qualification process. Anyway, it seems that they had learned how to run and kick again. And for the first, and as far as I know, only time, all four British teams qualified for the final round. That's right, that's England, Wales, Scotland and Northern Ireland. All of them were there in 1958. Only Northern Ireland got through to the quarterfinals, where they got smashed 4-0 by France. The tournament also saw the emergence of Pelé, uh, the Brazilian superstar, who scored two goals in the final. French striker Just Fontaine, or Just Fontaine, I think it's Just, I'm going to call him Just Fontaine, for the purposes of a stupid joke, which I'm going to tell in a moment. So French striker Just Fontaine became the top scorer of the tournament with a still-standing record of 13 goals. Yes, that's right, Just was his name. Although I think it may be called Just, but I'm going to pronounce it Just. Otherwise, this terrible joke that I'm about to tell you won't work. So, who scored 13 goals in the 1958 World Cup? It was Just Fontaine. What, Just Fontaine? Nobody else? No, that's right. It was just Fontaine on his own. Mm. 
Okay. <laughs> Here's another one. Yeah, Just Fontaine. It sounds a bit disappointing, doesn't it? So who was the top scorer? Oh, it was, it was Just Fontaine. Oh, what, Just Fontaine? That's it? Yeah. Oh, that's a pity. No one else? No. It was Just Fontaine. No, no, that's his name. Just Fontaine. Or probably Just Fontaine. Um, anyway, he scored 13 goals in the 1958 World Cup. Well done. Chile hosted the 1962 World Cup. And before play began, an earthquake struck, the largest ever recorded, at 9.5 magnitude, prompting officials to rebuild due to major damage to infrastructure. It's basically, it's pretty hard to play football when there's no floor to play on. To be honest, it must be pretty tough living in a country where the earth shakes every now and then. I think it would be pretty scary. Honestly, that's one of the things I like about living in England and in northern France. Okay, the weather isn't great, but the earth pretty much stays in one place most of the time, except when you've drunk a bit too much cider. When the 1962 competition began, one of the best, uh, two of the best players were in poor form, as Pele was injured in Brazil's second group match versus Czechoslovakia, and the uh, USSR saw their goalkeeper Lev Yashin show poor form including a 2-1 loss to hosts Chile as Chile inspired by team spirit captured third place the competition was also marred by overly defensive and often violent tactics violent tactics uh, this poisonous atmosphere so we're talking about the 62 World Cup where there was a lot of violence and defensive tactics. This poisonous atmosphere culminated in what was known as the Battle of Santiago. It was a first-round match between Italy and Chile, in which Chile won 2-0. Prior to the match, two Italian journalists wrote some very unflattering articles about the host country. So imagine that it's, it's Italian journalists writing some very nasty things about Chile uh, just before the match. And then in the match the kind of bad feeling spilled over into, well, it spilled onto the pitch. So all this kind of negativity and this bitterness that had been stoked up by these journalists spilled over in, into the match and players on both sides made deliberate attempts to harm opponents, though only two players from Italy were sent off by English referee Ken Aston. I've seen some of the footage. I checked it out on YouTube. At one point... A guy gets punched in the face. Another point, someone does a big flying kick, like a big kung fu flying kick, and cracks a guy in the head with his football boot. It was horrible. Would you like to know what happened in more detail? Yes, of course. Of course, Luke. Of course we want to know about all the gruesome, horrible violence that went down in the Battle of Santiago between Italy and Chile in 1962. Come on. We want a blow-by-blow account. Okay, then. So here's a summary, again, from Wikipedia here, I think. Um, So it goes like this. Yeah, this is Wikipedia. The first foul occurred within 12 seconds of kickoff. 12 seconds. 12 seconds, the first foul. Italy's Giorgio Ferrini was sent off in the 12th minute after a foul on Honorino Landa. He was sent off after 12 minutes, but he refused to leave the pitch and he had to be dragged off by policemen. He had to be dragged off the pitch by police. Imagine that happening now. 
one of the players in the World Cup. Oh, and he's he's been given the red card, and and the players now start complaining with the referee and he's not leaving and then like you know five minutes later and the police now handcuffing um uh, what's his name ferini and you know literally dragging him off the pitch imagine that english referee ken aston didn't see a punch by chilean lionel sanchez to italian mario david david okay so the referee didn't see uh, sanchez punch david uh, which had actually come in retaliation for being fouled seconds earlier. So he didn't see the punch. Like, what? what is this guy? Bruce Lee? Just whoosh, like the one-inch punch? Maybe. When David attempted to kick Sanchez in the head a few minutes later, he was sent off. In the violence that continued, Sanchez broke Umberto Machio's nose with a left hook, but Aston didn't send him off. Right. Okay. So, you know what? The previous one where um, David attempted to kick Sanchez in the head, he actually missed. So he tried to kick him in the head and he missed and he was sent off. So apparently he was sent off for being pathetic. Like, that was rubbish. You could have done much better. You didn't even connect with his head. Get off the pitch. You're pathetic. And then in the violence that continued, Sanchez broke uh, Umberto Machio's nose with a left hook but Aston didn't send him off right because kicking the air is obviously much worse than breaking a man's nose with your fist although maybe at this point the referee just decided that staying on the pitch was a much greater punishment like you just broke this man's nose with your fist that kind of violence cannot be tolerated in football. I'm sorry, but I'm forced to make you stay on the pitch until the end of the game. No, 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 etc. No, you've got to stay on the pitch. Police forcing him to stay stay on the field. Um, the two teams engaged in scuffles. That's like little fights. And spitting. And police had to intervene three more times. Chile eventually won the match 2-0. But if it had been a boxing match, Italy would have won. When highlights from the match were shown on British television a couple of days later, the match was introduced by BBC Sports commentator David Coleman as the most stupid, appalling, disgusting and disgraceful exhibition of football possibly in the history of the game. Wow. Good evening. The game you're about to see is the most stupid, appalling, disgusting and disgraceful exhibition of football possibly in the history of the game. Chile versus Italy. This is the first time the two countries have met. We hope it will be the last. The national motto of Chile reads, by reason or by force. Today, the Chileans were prepared to be reasonable. The Italians only use force. And the result was a disaster for the World Cup. Now, if the World Cup is going to survive in its present form, something's got to be done about teams that play like this. Indeed, after seeing the film tonight, you at home may well think that teams that play in this manner ought to be expelled immediately from the competition. Just see what you think. In the end, the Italian team needed police protection to leave the field in safety. Wow. Obviously, that's ugly and horrible and, like David Coleman said, appalling, disgusting and disgraceful. But something in me, I don't know what it is, secretly hopes that we get drama like that again this year. But if it happens in Russia, how would, they, how would the Russian authorities crack down on that kind of thing? I don't know. I have no idea. 
This is where we could throw in various Russian-related jokes. They would just give them vodka, or that kind of thing is fine as long as you pay off the police, or some jokes like that. I don't know. I'll let you do that, folks, in the comment section, or not. It's up to you. When the final whistle blew in the final in 1962, Brazil beat Czechoslovakia for the second World Cup in a row by a a final score of 3-1, led by Garincha and Amarildo. (laughs) I had to pause there just to make sure I uh, got that right. And they retained the Jules Rimet Trophy. That was the name of the World Cup in those days. In this tournament, Colombia's Marcus Cole made World Cup history when he scored a goal direct from a corner kick, which apparently is called an Olympic goal in Latin America. Is that true? So this Colombian guy scored a goal straight from a corner kick, which is the only one that's ever been made in a World Cup. And that was against the mythical goalkeeper Lev Yashin. So Wikipedia describes Lev Yashin as a mythical goalkeeper. Well, I think he did actually exist. So I think we can confirm it's not really a myth. He he did exist. I know. They just use mythical as a way of saying, like, legendary. But mythical also sort of suggests that, you know, it's just like a story that people tell. But, you know, maybe it's not even true. But no, mythical goalkeeper Lev Yashin, no, he did exist. You know, people... There's lots of good evidence. It's not a myth. Anyway, the 1966 World Cup, which was hosted by England, was the first to embrace marketing, featuring a mascot and an official logo for the first time. You know, every World Cup has a World Cup mascot, like a sort of slightly annoying animal or like a logo, which is, I don't know, it's got like, you know, those logos, they may feature parts of the the city or famous landmarks from the host country with like a football and the picture of the world cup and like a banana or something you know you know the kind of thing i mean um we invented that in britain in england in 1966 yep that's what england brought to the world cup annoying marketing we arguably invented the game in the first place or at least we wrote a lot of the rules or something and uh, we probably gave football to the world, that, or that's what we like to believe anyway. And then decades later, we gave another precious gift to the world. Irritating World Cup mascots. You're welcome, everyone. The trophy, the Jules Rimet trophy, was actually stolen in the run-up to the tournament, but it was found a week later by a dog named Pickles. OK, only in England. Uh, North Korea became the first Asian team to reach the quarterfinals, eliminating Italy in the process. Now, it actually said eliminating in the article on Wikipedia. That's right. North Korea eliminated Italy. I think this just means that they knocked Italy out of the tournament. I don't think it means that they blew the country up and killed all Italian people. Eliminated. It just sounds slightly dramatic. Terminated, you know. Uh, North Korea terminated Italy. Terminated. A slightly dramatic word choice, but by whoever it was who wrote this article on Wikipedia. I don't know who wrote it. Who writes the articles on Wikipedia? John Wikipedia? John Wikipedia, the hardest working writer in the world. Of course it's not John Wikipedia. I know it's like crowdsourced. It's Anyone can write articles on Wikipedia, can't they? But I, I like to imagine that it's all written by a guy called John Wikipedia. 
The name's Wikipedia, John Wikipedia. Uh, and I, I work very, very hard and I have no money. Um, England won the tournament. That's right. And Jeff Hurst became the first and to this day the only player to score a hat-trick in the World Cup final. Yes, England won. And ever since, we've been officially known as the best country in the world ever in our heads. The rest of the world isn't bothered. They're like, yeah, you know, to be honest, England, it, any World Cup before about 1970 just doesn't count. So yeah, okay, you can celebrate your victory. But most people who remember that, most people are dead. Those people are dead now. So that's basically, it's a myth. We don't even believe it happened. Sorry, it doesn't count, England. Yes, but for the English, we're like, 1966, that's it. That's when history stopped, isn't it? That's, that's it. I mean, you can't improve on that. We still, we still, in our hearts, we're still World Cup winners. Oh, dear, no. No, it's a long time ago now. Um, Eusebio, who's, he was a Portuguese player, a great Portuguese player. Eusebio, whose team Portugal were taking part in their first World Cup, was the tournament top scorer with nine goals to his name. Also in the in the final, by the way, in the nineteen sixty six final, there was all, of course, that controversial goal. Um, <clears throat> there was a a goal uh, scored by England against Germany, where the ball hit the crossbar, bounced down onto the line, and then bounced out of the goal. And the referee gave it as a goal, but if you look at the replay, it definitely wasn't a goal. The ball didn't go in the goal. It bounced. Uh, on the like the wrong side of the line, it definitely wasn't a goal when you look at the replay. So that was a bit of a controversial one. The ball didn't cross the line, but you know it was a big joyful moment for England. And um, you know at the time we felt like, well, okay, that maybe we didn't score that goal, but we feel like we deserved to win just because morally we had the high ground at that point. You know, Germany. It was just kind of Germany were like, ah, okay, guys, fair enough. Yeah, we. We we that wasn't a goal, but no, we can't really com- we can't really complain about it, can we? <laughs> maybe maybe in another ten fifteen years, then we can maybe sort of uh, start complaining about it. But no, we're just keeping a low profile at the moment, so that's fine. So joy for England in a pretty special year, and in fact, a whole decade for the country, the sixties. Well, there was this: the World Cup win, and also the Beatles recorded "Revolver" in nineteen sixty six which on balance I am actually more proud of. Anyway, well done, chaps. Well done, England. Let's see if we can do it again. Oh, you've forgotten how to use your legs. Oh, dear, what happened? Uh, In 1970, the finals were held in Mexico. The group stage clash between defending champions England and Brazil lived up to its billing, meaning it was billed as being a big game. And it's still remembered... Uh, for England goalkeeper Gordon Banks' save from a Pele header on the six-yard line. Arguably the best save ever. A famous save. Gordon Banks was the goalkeeper for England. And uh, the ball crossed uh, was crossed in, and Pele was um, unmarked, I think, on the, on the far post. And maybe about on the six-yard line, he jumped and headed the ball. It looked like it was bound to go in he headed it down towards the goal right next to the post Gordon Banks had miles of ground to cover but somehow Banks managed to leap all the way across and 
stop the ball from going in. It was an incredible save. And it's arguably the best save ever. Although, saying that, once my brother nearly dropped a glass of wine on my parents' carpet, but I managed to dive and catch it at the last minute. So <clears throat> I still think this, this is better than anything that Gordon Banks ever did, to be honest. The tournament is also remembered for the semi-final match between Italy and West Germany, in which five goals were scored in extra time, and German player Franz Beckenbauer played with a broken arm. Uh, not for fun, you know, not just because he was bored. I mean, he wasn't just playing with some. He didn't just have a broken arm, you know, and he was like someone else's broken arm, and he was like, oh, look, just like playing with it. He wasn't playing with a broken arm like that. Like, oh, look, you know, it's all floppy. Does it hurt when I do that? Does, what about when I swing it round? Like, stop playing with my broken arm. No. Ha, ha, ha. No, he had a broken arm and he played football with it. I mean, he, you know, he continued to play football with his... I don't mean that he was hitting the ball with his broken arm. I don't mean he played football with it like that. I mean, he just carried on playing while he had a broken arm. Okay, so he played football with a broken arm. Is that clear? Yes, it was clear to begin with. Just get on with it. Okay. Uh, Germany had used up all their allowed substitutions and so Beckenbauer had to carry on even though he had a broken arm. Football players were much tougher back then, weren't they? It's like, got a broken arm? We don't have any replacement substitutes? All right, never mind. I I will just carry on. I am Franz Beckenbauer. I am tough because I'm from the past. And yes, this is a German accent. What did you think it was? It's not racist. Um, so yeah players were much tougher back then these days if you sneeze on a footballer's arm they'll leap into the air like a salmon and then roll around holding their face in agony like a child having a tantrum in a supermarket but back in those days broken arm no problem Italy were the eventual 4-3 winners but they were defeated 1-4 in the final by Brazil who became the first nation to win three World Cups and were awarded the Jules Rimet Trophy permanently for their achievement. Basically, the world just said to Brazil, "Okay, Brazil, you can just look, you can just have the World Cup forever. You're amazing. You you now own football. Okay, football is yours. England were like, okay, there you go, Brazil. You can have football now. Uh, You own it. And now your country will forever be associated with the game. And whenever you meet people from other countries, they will always just say, hey, you're a Brazilian guy. Oh, wow, so you love football, huh? Yeah, a bit like the way that when people meet an English person, they typically will say, hey, you're an English guy. Huh? Oh, cool. Hey, you know, we don't understand your food or your humour or your accents or your inability to score penalties or, in fact, normal goals as well. But please teach me your language. Uh, so, yes, Brazil uh, were awarded the trophy permanently for being brilliant. So this was the legendary Brazilian squad from 1970, including players like Pelé, Captain Carlos Alberto Torres, Yarzinho, Tostão, Gerson and Rivelino and other players whose names I'll pronounce wrong. For me, this was when the World Cup entered a new era with superstar players in colour, with television in many people's homes. A new trophy was created for the 1974 edition, which was held in West Germany. Some people make jokes about its appearance. Do they? 
apparently, yes. Some people make jokes about its appearance. I'll, I'll let you imagine what those jokes are. What was that? I don't know. I wrote that ages ago. What's, what do you mean you wrote that ages ago? Well, yeah, you know what? In, originally, I wrote, the, I wrote the first draft of this history of the World Cup um, <clears throat> four years ago for the uh, World Cup in 2014. And what happened? Why didn't you use it? God, I did too many episodes about the World Cup then, and I thought another one with a full history of the World Cup would be too much. So what, what's, what are you talking about? So I'm saying I wrote this four years ago, um, and uh, I'm recycling it now. Okay, that's good. So, so, so what? Some of the things, some of the little jokes and things you wrote in here, you can't remember? You don't find them funny anymore? No, I, no, I don't really. I don't really remember some of the stuff I wrote here. Okay, was it necessary to have this conversation with yourself? No, not at all. Let's carry on. Okay. So, uh, the West German hosts won the competition by beating the Netherlands 2-1 in the final. But it was also the revolutionary total football system of the Dutch that captured the world's imagination. What's total football? <coughs> Excuse me. In total football, a player who moves out of his position is replaced by another from his team, thus retaining the team's intended organisational structure. In this fluid system, no outfield player is fixed in a predetermined role. Anyone can successively play as an attacker, a midfielder and a defender. Whoa. So imagine you've got like a, a structure of players on the pitch. Anyone can play in any position. It's all about just moving, making sure that different parts of the field are covered at all times so everyone's like switching round sometimes defenders are playing like attackers attackers playing like defenders goalkeepers playing like attackers probably not I expect the goalkeepers stayed as goalkeepers didn't they um, the only player here we go the only player who must stay in a specified position is the goalkeeper because the whole thing would just fall apart wouldn't it if the goalie suddenly decided to become a midfielder like, hey, I'm just going to hang around in the middle of the field for a while. I'm bored of being in goal. I want to score. And everyone's like, what, 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 no, 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 you've got to... Oh, and then, you know, and someone just scores from the halfway line. Well, what, why weren't you in goal? I don't know. I just wanted to be a midfielder for a bit. That's not exactly how it worked. So it's not rush goalie, which is a rule that we used to play in the park when we were kids. Rush goalie. Like, hey, let's play rush goalie rush goalie rules that means that basically anyone can be the goalkeeper if they're in the goal area then they're the goalie basically so I don't think that's total football that's just total nonsense but generally what happened is that nobody wanted to be the goalie in, in rush goalie when I was a kid no one wanted to be the goalkeeper so quite often the goal would just be left unattended while the members of the team looked at each other and argued about why nobody was in goal everyone was a glory hunter Everyone wanted to be up front. No one wanted to be the team player and go in goal. An indictment of the English game there, surely. So anyway, that was a bit about total football and how it's not rush goalie, which is what we used to play at school. The, the, the very well-playing Poland finished third after beating Brazil 1-0 and after defeating Argentina 3-2 and eliminating Italy 2-1 in the initial group play. Wow, Italy got eliminated again. Uh, I mean, not just beaten, not just knocked out, but eliminated. They lost in terrible rain in the semi-finals to West Germany. 
I mean, the Polish, they, they lost in the semi-finals to Germany. I bet that hurt. Germany, basically Germany said, the Polish are proving to be rather problematic. Eliminate them immediately. And then they, they did. This is a slightly immature episode, but that's fine. The World Cup is all about having fun and poking fun at nations around the world in, a, in, a, in the best possible spirit. Look, I may, I'll make fun of England as well. England, you know, shit at football, aren't they? Yeah, they are. There you go. You see? Uh, 1978 World Cup was held in Argentina, causing controversy as a military coup had taken place in the country two years earlier. A bit controversial. Military coup. Tunisia won their first match against Mexico 3-1 and became the first African team to ever win a World Cup game. Congratulations, Tunisia. Well done. There was some on-field controversy as well. During the second round, Argentina had an advantage in their match against Peru since the kickoff was several hours after Brazil's match with Poland. Okay, do you get this? During the second round, Argentina had an advantage in their match against Peru because the kickoff was several hours after Brazil's match with Poland. Brazil won their match with Poland 3-1. So Argentina knew that they had to beat Peru by four goals to advance to the final. Peru were trailing 2-0 at halftime and then they simply collapsed in the second half and Argentina eventually won 6-0. Now, rumours suggested that Peru might have been bribed into allowing Argentina to win the match by such a large margin. Just rumours. Bribery and corruption in football? Surely not. Please add irony irony and sarcasm to that if you want. Um, Argentina went on to win the final 3-1. Mario Kempes scoring twice. With the Dutch being runners-up for the second time running. Obviously, it was a fantastic result for Argentina. Well done, Argentina. Clap, clap, clap. Give yourselves a pat on the back. The Netherlands still haven't won the World Cup, despite being one of the great footballing nations of all time and for being very tall as well 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 done uh to all the people from the netherlands for generally being quite tall and and for speaking with uh, you know this kind of voice hey we're dutch guys we love football we, we created total football and johan cruyff was an innovator but we've never won the the, the tournament i don't understand it either okay that was that Dutch? Yes, it was. 1982, Spain hosted an expanded 1982 World Cup, which featured 24 teams. Count them, 24. The group match between Kuwait and France was stage of a farcical incident, a ridiculous incident. As the French were leading 3-1, the Kuwaiti team stopped playing after hearing a whistle from the stands which they thought had come from a referee as French defender Maxime Bossis scored. Okay, all right. So Maxime scored a goal, but while they were doing it, the Kuwaiti teams just stopped playing because they heard a whistle from the, from the uh, crowd thinking it was the, the referee. So as the Kuwaiti team were protesting the goal, Sheikh Fahid Al-Ahmad Al-Sabah president of the Kuwaiti Football Association rushed onto the pitch and gave the referee a piece of his mind who proceeded to disallow the goal 
<clears throat> Bosses scored another valid goal a few minutes later, and France won 4-1 anyway. Wonderful. Imagine the chic, shake, chic, shake, shake, chic. Imagine him running onto the pitch. This goal must be disallowed. The whistle was blown. Uh, not my whistle, sir. I don't care. A whistle was blown. Maybe not your whistle, but it, it was a whistle. The goal must be disallowed. May I remind you that I am very powerful Muslim, and it would be very unwise to disagree with me. Okay, uh, that's not necessary. That that kind of off-colour, slightly anti-Muslim joke has no place in an international tournament like this. Please just think about what I said, and remember, God is watching you, and I have a lot of money, and I'm sure we can sort something out, Okay. Okay, goal disallowed. Thank you, thank you, thank you, please, Mr. Referee. Thank you, very, very kind man. And then a few minutes later, France score again. Oh shit! <laughs> also, during the group stages, Hungary beat El Salvador ten-one, which has been the only occasion to this day that a team scored ten goals in a World Cup match. To be fair to El Salvador. Their country was in the middle of a civil war at the time, which might have made training a bit difficult because apparently players were often late because they were helping the uh, the wounded on the way to the training ground. So well done, Hungary. You beat El Salvador 10-1. But should you have? Hmm. The final was won by Italy against West Germany, making Italian captain Dino Zoff the oldest player to win the World Cup. He was 97 years old. Italian striker Paolo Rossi, who was making his comeback after a match-fixing scandal and the ensuing ban, was the tournament top scorer with six goals, including a classic hat-trick against Brazil. Well done, Paolo Rossi, although the whole match-fixing scandal kind of takes the edge off it a little bit there for me. Good with your feet, not so good with uh, 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 honesty. Um, Sorry, Italy. Sorry. Well, come on. Right? Brilliant at football, not very good at not being corrupt. In 1986, Mexico became the first nation to hold two World Cups by hosting the World Cup. That's how you become the first nation to host two World Cups. You host the World Cup twice. Uh, Jose Batista of Uruguay set a World Cup record, being sent off after a mere 56 seconds into the game against Scotland. To be fair, it was a very nasty and dangerous tackle, and this decision by the referee helped to establish the idea that dangerous tackles like that shouldn't be allowed, even against Scotland. The quarter-final match between England and Argentina is remembered for two remarkable Diego Maradona goals. Maradona was later regarded as the player of the tournament. The first goal was the controversial handball goal, and the second one was considered the goal of the century, in which he dribbled half the length of the the field uh, past five English players before scoring. And... uh, yeah, so two goals, like wildly different goals, typical of Maradona. Like the one goal which he scored with his hand and another goal which was legitimately incredible. And I remember watching it on TV with my family when I was nine. And as England supporters, we were furious, of course, because Maradona blatantly cheated. Nowadays, I mean, this, this is seen as being sort of, I guess, is it? Is this is this connected to revenge? I don't know. I think the Argentinians were obviously over the moon because this happened within the in the context of the Falklands War, the battle over the Malvinas or the Falklands, 
um, and it's all bound up in politics again. But, you know, the World Cup's not supposed to be about this stuff. But I think it's somehow seen as being revenge for the Falklands or something like that. And anyway, in, in any case, it's generally part of the colourful career of Diego Maradona. It was a big spectacle, for sure, watching Maradona cheat in, in front of everyone uh, and get away with it. But some people reckon that if England hadn't, hadn't lost that game, that we could have won the tournament. Right, that's, that's, I mean, that's easy to do. It's easy to speculate about that, isn't it? Anyone can be chairman of the hindsight committee. I mean, anyone can look back with hindsight and make statements like, well, you know, if we'd won, if we'd won we would have won the tournament, I reckon, because, you know, Germany weren't uh, on great form. And I think that our England team could have beaten the German team. So if it wasn't for Maradona, then uh, we would have won. Um, anyone could say that. The fact that Maradona also scored that goal of the century, that amazing goal, uh, kind of makes up for the handball, I suppose. I mean, have, have you seen the video? Many of you will have seen it actually happen live. Um, so the ball kind of comes in and Maradona seems to jump up and head the ball just beyond the goalkeeper's reach and into the goal. But he actually gets his hand in there. He uses his arm and palms the ball into the goal. And from the, I guess from the point of view of the referee, he couldn't see the hand, but it was blatant and obvious, but he completely got away with it. I mean, I don't know. I don't know. How, what's your attitude towards that? I think in some countries, that kind of thing is kind of considered part of the game, isn't it? It's like fair, as long as you can get away with it. If you get away with it, then fair enough. But in England, that kind of cheating is frowned upon, you know, because we pride ourselves on the idea of fair play in sport anyway. I'm not sure about every other aspect of life, but we are all about fair play in sport. In the final, Argentina beat West Germany 3-2 inspired by Diego Maradona, who set up uh, George Burrachaga for the winner. Maradona was undeniably amazing. Um, And he was very good at dribbling, extremely good at dribbling in several ways. Dribbling with a ball and dribbling when he'd had too much to drink, no doubt. (laughs) Ha ha ha, that was maybe a slightly inappropriate joke. Dribbling, that's when like, like babies dribble a lot you know because they their glands are developing and they don't don't really have any control over the saliva that comes into their mouth so they dribble a lot also you might dribble if you've drunk too much i mean a, a lot so maradona was expert at uh, very good at dribbling throughout his career <sighs> no i don't mean to make fun of maradona i do think he's kind of amazing incredible character amazing footballer undeniable In 1990, the uh, 1990 World Cup was held in Italy. That's why they called it the 1990 World Cup, because it it took place in 1990. Uh, Cameroon, participating in their second World Cup, made it to the quarterfinals after beating Argentina in the opening game. No African country had ever reached the quarterfinals before. It was a beautiful moment for Africa as a continent and Cameroon as a nation. England put a stop to that by beating them sorry Cameroon Roger Miller was an entertaining player I think he invented the celebratory dance if you remember whenever Roger Miller scored he'd run over to the corner flag and do a kind of a cool dance which was uh, really cool now an unpleasant episode marred the South American preliminaries 
uh, marred, like like uh, put a negative atmosphere on something. So an unpleasant episode. Uh, tainted or marred the South American preliminaries. During the match between Brazil and Chile, a firework landed on the pitch close to the Chilean goalkeeper Rojas, who then pretended to be injured by cutting his own face with a razor blade that he had hidden in his glove. His team refused to continue the match. Basically, he he was faking it. He pretended to be injured by a uh, 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 a firework when, in fact, he cut his own face with a razor blade. The plot was discovered and resulted in a 12-year suspension for Rojas, whose name I may be pronouncing wrong, and Chile being banned from the World Cup in 1994. Oh, naughty boys. So I suppose, what, <clears throat> Chile were losing? And so they, you know, this was his tactic for cancelling the game to give them a possible advantage. Oh, dear. The final of the 1990 World Cup uh, featured the same teams as in 1986. After finishing runners-up in the two previous tournaments, West Germany beat Argentina 1-0 in the final to record their third title. Well done. The Republic of Ireland also made their first appearance in the tournament, reaching the quarterfinals without winning a single game. Four draws with a penalty shootout win over Romania in the second round. So they didn't actually win a game like in the normal way. This is the furthest the team has ever advanced in the World Cup without winning a game. Somehow it seems entirely appropriate that the Irish could actually get through to the quarterfinals without actually winning any games. Don't you think? Only the Irish could manage to do that. Um, like, yeah, we got through to the quarterfinals, didn't win any games. How did you get through? I don't know. Uh, I, it, I think it was luck. Luck of the Irish. It's as if the world said to Ireland, OK, Ireland, you know, everyone likes you. And, you know, we feel sorry for you because of what happened with England over the, you know, all those years ago. We like you, Ireland, and we're not so keen on England. So, and also your accent is adorable and Guinness is amazing. So, you know what? You can just go through. You don't have to win any games. Just go through. There you go. Nice one. Thanks for all the Irish pubs. We appreciate it very much. The luck of the Irish. I was 13 or 14 years old at the time and I was completely obsessed by football in 1990. Uh, I used to play football all the time in the garden with my friends and I watched the tournament on TV and I had the fully completed Panini sticker album which my dad bought for me one day. A sticker album, you must know what that is. It's like an, an album where you buy stickers in little packs. The stickers are made by a, comp- a company called Panini and you'd buy the stickers and you didn't know... You know, you get like six stickers in each pack and you didn't know which stickers you'd get and you had to try and collect all the stickers. You put the stickers in the album and you get like all the teams and even stickers for referees and flags of teams and things like that. So we used to, I used to collect the stickers and I filled my Panini sticker album. It was complete. Even in the playground at school, we used to deal stickers. We'd be there with the big piles of stickers going through them and we'd share the stickers with each other. So you'd flick through all your, your stickers and you'd be, your friend would flick through their sticker collection and you would say, got or need, okay, got or need. So you'd be like, got, 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 need, got, 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 need. And every time you got need, you'd like do a deal. Be like, all right, you need that one. What have you got? And you'd be like, got, 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 need. All right, let's swap. 
and then you'd swap. But some of the stickers were more valuable than others. And so, you know, there'd be like a little negotiation. Ah, those were the days. And I loved that England team. And we nearly got to the final. England actually did quite well. And we fought hard against Germany in the semi-final. Paul Gascoigne was a great player during that tournament. And he cried when he got a yellow card that would ban him from the final. So he cried. And the match went to a penalty shootout. England versus Germany. It was a draw at the end. So it was a penalty shootout at the end. And of course, we lost. Because that's what we do in, in England now. We, um, we make terrible political decisions and we lose football matches on penalties. Uh, the 1994 World Cup held in the USA was the first tournament to be held in a country that largely didn't really understand either the rules of the game or the idea that other countries even existed in the world. Oh, the World Cup, huh? So who's playing? Who's playing who? Pittsburgh versus Cleveland? Just joking, of course. Um, but this was the first World Cup final to be decided on penalties. The first World Cup final to be decided on penalties with Brazil edging out Italy. And uh looked like it was a traumatic moment for Italy there. Imagine uh, f- like missing a penalty in a World Cup final. It'd be horrible. Um, Yugoslavia was excluded due to UN sanctions in connection with the war in Bosnia-Herzegovina. That's a little fun fact for you. Uh, Russia taking the place of the USSR, which had broken up over 1990 and 1991, played their first World Cup competition as a new country, with Greece, Nigeria and Saudi Arabia as other first-time teams. Diego Maradona was banned mid-tournament after testing positive for recreational drugs. I think, I think it was cocaine. And I think he was coked up during some of the games which was obvious when you saw the way he reacted to scoring. There was one goal he scored. It, admittedly, it was an amazing goal. But his reaction, his celebration was like, whoa, all right, calm down, man. He like ran almost like the length of the pitch and ran up to the camera and screamed into the camera. It's like, mate, like everyone knows that you're high right now. Just tone it down. Keep it under control a little bit. Jesus. So uh, it was obviously he was coked up and he got investigated and uh, tested positive for something. I think he, I think it was cocaine uh, and um, banned from the tournament, which is a pity because, you know, Maradona, we wanted to watch him doing amazing things. And so that was a pity. Uh, the guy was completely bonkers. He was off his head. Um, without him, Argentina were eliminated in the last 16 by Romania. And the tournament also saw tragedy when Colombian defender Andres Escobar was murdered 10 days after scoring an own goal against the hosts uh, in their first round match that eliminated Colombia. Now, this is a tragic story, okay? The story of Andres Escobar. A tragic story. There's no other way of putting it. It's just sad. The guy was just the victim of a gang-related culture that existed in Colombia at the time. Uh, Horrible event. But come on, let's get the story, shall we? Let's find out what happened. So basically, uh, Colombia versus Mexico. One of the Colombian players scored an own goal. That's where you put the ball into your own goal. And 10 days later, he was murdered. And yes, the, it was in connection with the own goal. 
So Escobar's infamous own goal occurred in a match against the United States. <clears throat> Not Mexico. What am I talking about? The United States. On the 22nd of June, in the second match for Colombia at the 1994 World Cup. Stretching to block across from American midfielder John Harkes, he inadvertently deflected the ball into his own net. The United States won the game 2-1. After the 1994 FIFA World Cup, Escobar decided to return to Colombia instead of visiting relatives in Las Vegas. On the evening of the 1st of July 1994, five days after the elimination of Colombia from the World Cup, Escobar called his friends and they went to a bar in the El Poblado neighbourhood in Medellin. Then they went to a liquor store. Shortly afterwards, they arrived at the El Indio nightclub. His friends split up and went different ways. At approximately three o'clock in the morning, Escobar was alone in the parking lot of El Indio, in his car, when three men appeared. They began arguing with him. Two of the men took out handguns, and Escobar was shot six times with a thirty-eight caliber pistol. It was reported, it was reported, I don't know if this has been confirmed, but it was reported that the killer shouted, Gol! Uh, Gol! After every shot. Imagine six times with the killer shouting, Goal! Goal! Every time. Six times, once for each time the South American football commentator said it during the broadcast. Is that true? So the, the South American football commentator shouted, Goal! Six times when it was broadcast on TV, and the uh, killer shouted, Goal! Six times as he shot Escobar. Whoa, that sounds like something out of a movie. The group then drove away in a Toyota pickup truck, leaving Escobar to bleed to death. Escobar was rushed to the hospital, where he died 45 minutes later. The murder was widely believed to be a punishment for the own goal. Escobar's funeral was attended by more than 120,000 people. Every year, people honour Escobar by bringing photographs of him to matches. In July 2002, the city of Medellin unveiled a statue in honour of his memory. Humberto Castro Munoz, a bodyguard for members of a powerful Colombian drug cartel, was arrested on the night of the 2nd of July 1994, confessing the next day to the killing of Escobar. Uh, Munoz also worked as a driver for Santiago Galon, who had uh, allegedly lost heavily betting on the outcome of the game. He was found guilty of Escobar's murder in June 1995, and he was sentenced to 43 years in prison. Uh, the sentence was later reduced to 26 years because of his submitting to the ruling penal code in 2001. Umberto was released on good behaviour due to further reductions from prison work and study uh, and in, in 2005 after serving approximately 11 years. So his his forty three prison his forty three year prison sentence was shortened to eleven years. His three accomplices were acquitted. Doesn't sound like justice. Um, but what do I know? The murder of Andres Escobar tarnished the image of the country internationally. <clears throat> Escobar himself had worked to promote a more positive image of Colombia, earning acclaim within Colombia itself. Escobar is still held in the highest regard by Colombian fans and is especially mourned and remembered by Atletico Nacional's fans. Escobar is known for his famous line, Life doesn't end here. 
After Escobar's death, his family founded the Andres Escobar Project to help disadvantaged children learn to play football. So at least that's one positive end to that story. Um, Still in 1994, Oleg Salenko of Russia became the first player to score five goals in a single World Cup finals game in his country's 6-1 group stage win over Cameroon. In the same match, 42-year-old Roger Miller scored the only goal for Cameroon, becoming the oldest player ever to score in a World Cup match. England didn't qualify for this competition, but I watched a lot of the games anyway. I was 17 years old, I think, and one of my friends had a free house during the the final week of the tournament. A free house. That's when uh, your parents are away. So his parents were away. He had a free house. So all of us hung around there and watched a lot of the games together. 17. Really good times. In 1998, um, the next World Cup happened, uh, and it was held in France. Iran beat the Maldives in qualification by the widest margin in World Cup history, 17-0. Hosts France won the tournament by beating Brazil 3-0 in the final. What a great moment for the French. There was a lot of hype around the Brazilian squad going into the competition, especially around the star player Ronaldo. As the scorer of four goals in the tournament, Ronaldo appeared to be less than 100% in the match and was unable to make any impact. So um, Ronaldo, up to that point, had been amazing during the tournament and in the sort of qualifying stages. And everyone was like watching Ronaldo and all eyes were on Ronaldo and he was brilliant. But in the final... He just didn't seem right. There was something weird um, going on. He just didn't play very well. He wasn't himself. What happened? Well, this is... uh, I'm reading this now from the Guardian uh, website. This is a a story that they wrote about it. Um, So, hours before the final at the Stade de France, Ronaldo suffered a mysterious seizure. Like, that's when you have a fit, you know, when your body shakes and you lose control. He had a, he suffered a strange seizure and was whisked to hospital, meaning taken to hospital quickly. And he was removed from the starting lineup, so he was removed from the team. Then he made an apparently miraculous recovery and was hastily returned to the team sheet, only to underperform in Brazil's heaviest defeat in 68 years of World Cups. Not surprisingly, the match soon transcended its sporting importance to become one of the resonant events in the country's contemporary history. Whereas the world's media soon moved on to other subjects, Brazil's media didn't. Within weeks, a lawyer began a civil action in a Rio court demanding explanations of what happened to Ronaldo on that day. Currently, the Rio Regional Medical Council started sorry, concurrently, meaning at the same time, the Rio Regional Medical Council started a professional ethics action against the two team medics, the sort of medical officers. Uh, They were both unanimously absolved. So a court action was taken out against the the medical, uh, you know, the medics who, who worked for the team, but they were absolved, so they weren't guilty of anything. But the most detailed investigation happened in Brazil's National Congress. And because the main protagonists all gave testimony, the public was offered unprecedented insight into what really went on behind the scenes on the day of the final. The details that emerged were riveting, meaning very, very interesting. 
The squad had lunch at the Chateau de Grande Romaine in Le Signy, near Paris, then went back to their rooms, which they were sharing in twos. Ronaldo was sharing with Roberto Carlos, next to a room with Edmundo and Doriva. Suddenly, Ronaldo started to have a fit. His entire body convulsed, he frothed at the mouth and began to shake uncontrollably. Roberto Carlos, overwhelmed by panic, started screaming for help. When I saw what it was, I despaired, Edmundo told Congress, because it was a really strong and shocking scene. He ran through the hotel, hitting on all the doors and shouting for everyone to come. A a congressman uh, asked the striker for more details. Was Ronaldo hitting out or shaking? He was hitting out a lot. So you can imagine Ronaldo shaking, out of control. His arms would have been like moving out as the muscles in his arms were, were spasming uncontrollably. He was hitting out a lot, said Edmundo. Was he lying down? Yeah, he was lying down and hitting himself with his hands like this and with his teeth. His teeth were locked together and his mouth was foaming and his whole body was hitting itself. Yes, the whole body, yes. Caesar Sampao, the defender, was the first person to administer first aid. He got to Ronaldo before the doctors did. And with Edmundo holding him down, he put his hand in Ronaldo's mouth to unravel his tongue and prevent him from swallowing it. Ronaldo, only aged 21, then fell asleep. According to Edmundo, the team doctors decided that the best course of action would be to pretend that nothing had happened when he woke up. We went back to our rooms and we rested, said Edmundo. But you know what I mean? But you know what I mean? Everyone was worried. My room was linked, so I saw everything. Every five minutes, someone came and stared. And Ronaldo was there sleeping like a baby. Must have been strange. This is just like when the day before or the same day as the game. Ronaldo woke up and went for tea. But he was subdued, like not full of energy. Leonardo, in a distressed state, insisted that Ronaldo be told what had happened. The doctors broke the news and said he would be taken for tests. Only if the tests were fine would he be able to play in the final. I imagine the whole team would have been, first of all, very shocked and worried and disturbed by what they'd seen, but also very worried and stressed about playing in the final and playing without their star player. When the squad took the coach to the Stade de France, Ronaldo instead went to the Lilas Clinic in Paris. 40 minutes before the kickoff, he showed up again. Uh, he, he turned up with the all clear, meaning the doctors had said everything was okay, insisting that he should play. <clears throat> Faced with this reaction, said Zagallo, I chose Ronaldo. Now, was it his being chosen that caused Brazil to lose? Absolutely not. I think it was the collective trauma created by the atmosphere of what had happened. Various conspiracy theories came out about what had happened. So before we actually learned from the the proceedings that took place, the public proceedings, there were all sorts of conspiracy theories going around. I think some of these conspiracies are still active. Conspiracy theory number one about what happened to Ronaldo in the 1998 World Cup final is this, that... Nike, or Nike, the clothing manufacturer, and the CBF, that's the the Brazilian Football uh, Association, I think, 
they forced Ronaldo to play. So this is the conspiracy, right? The, the conspiracy theory. Ronaldo had a fit shortly before the game and wasn't well enough to play. But the Brazilian Football Association intervened and forced him to play because there was a hidden part of the Nike CBF contract that dictated that he had to play in the World Cup final. And this is because Nike had invested so much in him specifically for its marketing campaign. So Nike and uh, the CBF forced Ronaldo to play even though uh, he shouldn't have done because of health reasons. Conspiracy two is that Brazil sold the World Cup. So this is how the conspiracy theory goes. Brazil's players received a total of $23 million in bribes. The promise of Brazil hosting the 2006 World Cup and an easy passage into the 2002 World Cup to throw the game. So the idea is that they received bribes to to lose the game in return for receiving the World Cup uh, as hosts in 2006. Ronaldo refused to have any part of this. Hence, Edmundo's name was in the list in his place. But Ronaldo changed his mind after Nike threatened to withdraw his sponsorship money. The idea was for Brazil to lose on a golden goal, but since they were so shaken by the deal, France, who were completely unaware of the plot, scored three times in 90 minutes. Oh, I don't know. Would the Brazilian players go along with that? I'd like to think not. But I think we know that that's not what happened, so it's just a conspiracy theory. Conspiracy theory three was that Ronaldo was drugged. The striker's indisposition on the day of the final was the result of sabotage by France, who wanted to put out uh, Brazil's best player. Eh, I wonder. Would France do that? Well, apparently not, because these are just theories. Uh, Conspiracy four is that Ronaldo was unwell, Uh, The idea being that he had a secret medical problem which he'd kept hidden all his life. Apparently not true because apparently it was like the first time he'd had a seizure, I think. Conspiracy five was the blue pill, the mysterious blue pill. Uh, The doctors gave him a blue pill as a painkiller, but it had a tranquilizing effect uh, that made him sleepy. Well, anyway, those are some of the... uh, uh, conspiracy theories if you want more of that kind of thing you can read a book by uh, alex bellos he's the author of a book called futebol that's f-u-t-e-b-o-l the brazilian way of life so if you want the full story of uh brazil's like um relationship with football you can read uh futebol the brazilian way of life by alex bellos now None of, none of those theories are true, according to the official narrative. Ronaldo just had a fit, it shocked the team, and then he was given a clean bill of health. He was rushed back into the team just minutes before the game, but he was subdued and the team were a bit shocked by it. Also, it was France's time to shine. They were playing at home, <clears throat> and this usually makes a massive difference in terms of the atmosphere in the stadium and in the country as a whole. Even if the Nike conspiracy theory isn't true, it certainly is true that there was a sense that the World Cup had become way too commercialised and more about money uh, than the true values of the World Cup. Uh, Debutants Croatia finished a commendable third. Um, I watched many of the games at home on my own, which is sad. This is when I was on summer holiday from university, living at my parents' house in the middle of nowhere. I didn't have a car. 
and there was no public transport, so I had to try and persuade my friends to come and collect me in their cars so I could watch games with them. And a lot of the time, I was just stranded on my own, shouting at the TV. I was 21 years old. England got knocked out by Argentina. On penalties, I I remember. Yep, on penalties, again. 2002. The 2002 World Cup was the first to be held in Asia and was hosted jointly by South Korea and Japan. Australia defeated American Samoa 31-0 in a preliminary match, a new record for the margin of victory and the highest scoring match ever. The tournament was successful was a successful one for teams traditionally regarded as minnows. A minnow is like a small fish. So the tournament was successful for teams traditionally regarded as small ones, like minnows, with South Korea, Senegal and USA all reaching the last eight. Brazil beat Germany 2-0 in the final for their fifth title. I was in Japan during this competition. I was 25 years old. Japan went a bit nuts for football, as you would expect. The Koreans went even more nuts because their team did really well, getting to the semi-finals and eventually finishing third. World Cup fever gripped South Korea, and I heard reports of people going crazy and jumping into rivers. That's all I remember about that, that a lot of people jumped into rivers. That's... I suppose that is a good way to react to your country doing really well in the World Cup. Just, eh, we won, we won, quick, find a river, just jump into a river. There were some allegations of corruption and some rather questionable refereeing decisions that seemed to favour the host's career, especially in their game against Italy, but in a few other games. I remember a lot of Japanese people saying that the referees in the Korean games were obviously biased. But I, I don't want to stoke up any tensions here, certainly not between Japan and Korea or anything. So, la 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 la, everything's okay. Happy, 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 happy. Let's just move on. So, uh, oh yeah, England got knocked out by Brazil in the quarterfinals, by the way. Not on penalties this time. We just got beaten normally. Uh, Ronaldinho happened to us, basically. And I went to one of the games in Japan, England versus Sweden, in the Saitama Stadium. And then I went drinking in Tokyo with loads of Japanese people who were completely nuts about David Beckham. Or David Beckham and his haircut. Everyone loved his haircut, which was described as a soft Mohican or softito Mohican. Uh, A lot of my students were obsessed by David Beckham for about two weeks. And often, you know, I'd meet students and I'd be like, so, you know, what do you do? What what are your hobbies? Oh, I like a footballer. David Beckham. And then two weeks later, so what are your hobbies? Uh, Do you like football? Ah, Ah, no, it's boring. So just for two weeks, football, everyone loved football. And then it was like, oh, no, no, I prefer baseball. 2006. The 2006 World Cup was held in Germany. By this point, it had become normal to have loads of corruption scandals in the run-up to the tournament. And I must say that the general atmosphere of the World Cup was all about making money for anyone with a vested interest in, well, making money for things. Having the World Cup in your country can bring in loads of money. Uh, Where that money actually goes is not entirely clear. The World Cup's so huge and it's privately owned. So um, it's uh, it's all about like uh, 
It's all about doing deals, and ha- and those deals are made between states and companies, so private and public interests mingling in a very seedy and suspicious manner. The way that the host country is chosen is based on national delegates casting votes. So representatives of different countries cast their votes to decide who should host the, uh, the, the tournament. These delegates represent different countries. The suggestion is the countries hoping to host the World Cup might try to persuade the other delegates, perhaps by doing dodgy little trade deals and offering kickbacks and other benefits in return for a vote. To give you a taste of some of the shenanigans that were going on, here's a paragraph from John Wikipedia's page about the 2006 World Cup. It's not just this kind of thing is not just exclusive to the uh, the 2006 World Cup in Germany. It's just the sort of thing that goes on. I think that everyone kind of acknowledges goes on uh, in in World Cup uh, hosting bids these days. Um, A number of irregularities surfaced, including in the months leading up to the decision for who should host the tournament, the sudden interest of German politicians and major businesses in the four Asian countries whose delegates were decisive for the vote. Just a week before the vote, the German government under Chancellor Gerhard Schroeder lifted their arms embargo on Saudi Arabia and agreed to send grenade launchers to the country. Okay, so they kind of said to Saudi Arabia, okay, you know, we'll lift the arms embargo. In fact, here, here are some grenade launchers. Mm, just, you know, we'll, we, we'll scratch your back and you scratch ours. Uh, Daimler Chrysler invested several hundred million euros in Hyundai, while one of the sons of the company's founders was a member of FIFA's executive committee. Hmm. Both Volkswagen and Bayer announced investments in Thailand and South Korea, whose respective delegates, Warawi Makudi and Chung Jong Moon, were possible votes for Germany. Mm. So, hey, uh, how about like a big investment in your company? Like, uh, hi, yeah, hi, Korea, uh, Thailand. How about we just give you loads of money? Uh, how about we invest heavily in some of your businesses just before the World Cup uh, uh, vote happens? <coughs> FIFA deny these things, of course. Um, as far as I know, they remain just allegations at this stage. I'm not saying that these are definitely things that happened. I think proceedings were opened into the bid, but I don't know the outcome. Okay, so we're not really sure what happened, in fact. The first seed, uh, by the way, seeded teams are the ones which are expected to do well. So the first seeds are. Uh, favourite teams and second seeds are in the next category down, probably due to their performance in the qualifying stages. So the first seed and World World Cup holders Brazil and second seeded England were initially English bookmakers' favourites. God knows why England were favourites to win. Presumably it was because of our performance in preceding games. Maybe it was because, well, you know... You know, England's performance has been pretty good in recent years. You know, we we won the World Cup in 1966. So uh, we think with this kind of form, we stand a good chance, you know, even though it was 50 years ago. But, you know, consistency. Um, So, uh, yeah, what happened, even though we were one of the the favourites? Yes, we were knocked out in a quarterfinal against Portugal. Yes, on penalties. Yep, yep, that's right. Um, 
A strong performance by Germany brought them as far as the semi-finals. However, the final matchup was between Italy and France. And this is the game in which French captain Zinedine Zidane was sent off in the last 10 minutes of extra time for a headbutt to the chest of Italian central defender Marco Materazzi. So this is one where Zidane, pow, did a big headbutt to Materazzi's chest and knocked him to the floor. I think this was both one of the ugliest moments in World Cup history and also one of the most awesome. Okay? Now, ugly... Right, so on the ugly side, this kind of violence shouldn't happen in football. Okay? Loads of children would have been watching all around the world. Also, it's just, you know, assault. It's a, you know, it's a form of assault. It's a, cr- it's a crime, to be honest. So that, there's no excuse for headbutting someone in the chest and knocking him down to the ground like that. An inexcusable... And, uh, and, and awful on the other hand I couldn't help being sort of weirdly impressed by how badass Zidane was apparently Maserati had been uh, saying some extremely insulting things to him throughout the match I expect the red mist descended and Zidane sort of lost control although it didn't look like he lost control That was one of the fascinating things. He looked like he was completely in control and it was such a devastating headbutt. It must have been... It must have hurt Maserati uh, quite a bit. Uh, France lost the game. But again, if it had been a UFC fight or a boxing match, then France would have won. Italy won 5-3 in a penalty shootout. The score having been 1-1 after 90 minutes and extra time. To be honest, France probably needed Zidane. It would have been helpful to them if he'd been on the pitch because as one of their best players, you know, he probably would have scored a penalty. Anyway, I watched this game in my flat in London and I was joined at half-time by a Polish friend called Marek who brought a plastic bag full of beer and who might be listening to this. I was 29 years old. Generally, I find, in my experience, having Polish friends are very good at providing plastic bags full of beer. So, nice one, Poland. Thank you very much, especially to you, Marek, for bringing beer to my apartment uh, on that day. Uh, 2010. The 2010 World Cup was held in South Africa. It was the first cup hosted on African soil, and the cup was won by Spain. Well done, Spain. The tournament was noted for its highly defensive opening matches. Highly defensive. uh, Also, you could also describe them as utterly boring, maybe. Uh, Controversies surrounding goal line technology and the introduction of vuvuzelas, which some people believe destroyed the atmosphere at many of the games. The noise was pretty annoying. Do you remember the Vuvuzelas? It was like watching football during an invasion of killer bees. Like that, the whole game. It was rubbish. Vuvuzelas were rubbish, weren't they? They drowned out all the noise and it sounded like a sort of just a constant and tiresome droning sound that never stopped. That all the way through, regardless of what was happening. So just... Nothing really happening. The ball being kicked around in the middle of the pitch. Uh, someone gets knocked down in the penalty area. Uh, you know, someone scores a goal. Someone, you know, uh, uh, does a flying kick and punches someone in the in the in the groin. Just the same noise all the way through. Um, so, although they were considered as one of the tournament favourites, the sp- 
The Spanish won the cup despite scoring only eight goals in seven games and losing their opening match to Switzerland. David Villa led the squad in scoring with five goals in a final which saw a record number of yellow cards distributed and what some considered violent play from the Dutch side, the 10-man Netherlands squad were defeated 1-0 in the 116th minute of extra time by an Andres Indiesta goal. I watched a lot of this in London with my girlfriend. I was 33 years old. England were pretty rubbish. We got smashed by an amazing German team 5-1. They completely took us apart in a very embarrassing way. Frank Lampard uh, had a goal disallowed by the referee, although the goal, it, it did cross the line. It was another one of those cases where, in a game uh, by England against Germany, the ball hit the crossbar and bounced down, and it wasn't clear if it had gone in. The referee said it wasn't a goal, but when you look at the replay, it was really a goal. It was like 30 centimetres over the line. It bounced into the goal and came out again. The referee didn't give the goal, but perhaps this was justice for the non-goal which was allowed back in the 1966 final when England beat West Germany all those years ago. Then, 2014, that was the last one, um, the World Cup was held in Brazil, making the second, making it the second time um, uh, that Brazil hosted the competition. I did quite a few podcasts about it back in 2014. They're all in the episode archive. One of them is a conversation with my dad about his memories of attending the World Cup in 1966 when it was hosted in England. So if you like listening to episodes with my dad and you like football, check out the episode archive for the World Cup episode where it, it's called My Dad's Memories of the World Cup. As ever, there were scandals and allegations of corruption and criticisms that the money generated by hosting the World Cup was not going to be reinvested in order to help local Brazilian people, many of whom really needed and still do need support. Whether the World Cup was good for Brazil overall is debatable. Certainly, it brought the attention of the world to Brazil in, in, you know, in new ways. There were protests, but also there were big parties and celebrations. The Cup was won by Germany, who beat Argentina 1-0 in the final. The Netherlands defeated Brazil 3-0 in the bronze medal game. Uh, So it was Germany first, then Argentina, then the Netherlands, and then Brazil in fourth place. There was also a famously humiliating defeat for Brazil by Germany in the semi-final, when the Germans thrashed the Brazilians 7-1, and nobody could believe their eyes. This must have hurt a lot. Brazil... If it makes you feel any better, England got eliminated in the group stage after just two matches. So, you know, come on. You might feel bad, but at least you're not England. Uh, This was also the tournament in which Luis Suarez of Uruguay bit Italian defender Giorgio Cialini. He actually bit him, I think, on the arm or the shoulder with his teeth. And it's the third time that he'd done it in his career. So Suarez, Luis Suarez, if you're listening, which of course you are, because everyone listens to Luke's English podcast, it's called football for a reason, okay? Football, not tooth head or tooth arm, okay? Just just don't bite anyone, okay? All right. 2014 was the first time that three consecutive tournaments saw the winning side coming from the same continent, being that being Europe, uh, Italy 2006, Spain 2010 and Germany in 2014 and that's it and that brings us now to 2018 in Russia and this is an incredibly long episode of the podcast, I didn't expect it to be this long 
Who's going to win in 2018? What's going to happen? I've got no idea. But hopefully it will be fun finding out in just a few days. And I'm hoping to do one or more episodes about this year's tournament. If I can manage it, um, I expect when, like, when the games begin and I get caught up in the World Cup fever, I probably won't be able to resist talking about it a bit on the podcast. So there you go. Thank you for listening to this super long episode of the podcast. Uh, I'll speak to you again on the podcast soon. But for now, goodbye. Bye, 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 bye. Thanks for listening to Luke's English Podcast. For more information, visit teacherluke.co.uk.